Hi, this is Jim. Welcome to another episode of Kitchen Table Adulting. Today we have Mark Brunette, uh, an Army veteran, who's going to talk to us about enlisting in the military. Hi, Mark. Hi. Nice to meet everyone. First of all, thank you for your service. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been my honor. Can you, uh, can you start by just telling us your story with the military? How, how young were you when you joined? Sure. Um, so I was a, a junior in high school. Um, uh, like a lot of young men and women, I wasn't really too excited about the idea of college. Um, so I approached a recruiter, um, had a really good experience, uh, signed up for a delayed entry program. And uh, my senior year, uh, pretty quickly, it was about a week after I graduated, I was off to boot camp. Uh, and uh, it's it was really, really good experience for me. I mean, it was uh, kind of the, the the shock of everything in the beginning, but once I actually got to my unit, made some really good friends. Um, my, my career was was pretty good and got very exciting. I, I had a great time with it. Excellent. Okay. And you were in total of 22 years, correct? Yes. Yes. Did 22 years. I was only going to do 20, but um, I, I, I ended up in a good, really, really good unit for that last portion. So I stayed a little longer. Gotcha. At the time when you enlisted, were you thinking career or were you thinking an initial four-year commitment and see where it goes? Yep. Just four, kind of four and see where it goes. Um, and the the initial unit I got into, and, and that's what, for a lot of people, that's what makes the military just like um, a, a job. If uh, the people you're surrounded with, basically your coworkers are, are good people and your boss is a fun person to work with, then the job's going to be great. And the majority of my career, I, I had the opportunity to have both of those, fortunately. That is fantastic. Okay. And so when you originally, in, well, first for the listeners, when you join the military, uh, you choose what's called an MOS, Military Occupation Specialty, correct? Yes, yes. And there, there's a difference between the branches and, and how that works. And uh, part of the appeal, and I, I don't, you know, every branch is great to me. I don't have, um, uh, like, I don't say anything bad or negative about any of the branches, but part of the appeal for the army in particular for me was being able to pick that job before I actually swore in and w- was committed to my career field. Gotcha. Okay. And do you, do you remember what was your original MOS? Uh, original MOS was 11 Bravo, which is infantryman. Um, I was pretty young, uh, male. And so that was very appealing to me, the physical aspects of it and the the excitement. So yeah, I originally joined as a infantryman and I ended up doing uh, airborne as well. Gotcha. And that's, that's an important thing for listeners to remember is that obviously there's a lot of adventure in infantry, but no civilian, uh, work to be had when you, with that skill set necessarily. Oh, absolutely correct. Yeah. And I, I was very fortunate, like like I said, with with parts of my career that I had some good mentors and uh, for the army. And again, this, you, they would have to, your, your listeners would have to research specific branches, but for the army, once you're over the 10 year mark of your career, that like that, that's your last chance prior to the 10 years to actually change your job. And so when I was at the seven year mark, I switched over to medical for the exact purpose you mentioned for that marketability beyond the military. Yeah, actually, uh, a couple of years ago, I was on a flight and I was sitting next to a young man who was on his way to Atlanta and ultimately Fort Benning for basic. And he said he had signed up for, I believe it was 91 Bravo, which is diesel mechanic, if I mm-hmm. remember that correctly. But 
it was very much with the idea that at the end of his four-year enlistment, he would have a very marketable skill, which I think, you know, works or is, is a very good option for some people. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's interesting for me as I went through my career, when I, I finished out in recruiting, I would have that kind of mirror image of a young version of myself that was very interested in uh, the, the exciting combat oriented jobs. And I was fighting myself because if, especially if they would have very, very high test scores, I wanted to talk them into intelligence or that, those marketable tech, uh, technical certified fields. And a lot of times I ran into myself and nope, I want to be a, you know, whatever you want to do is what I was there to support. So uh, yeah. it, it was interesting seeing that mirror image. <laughs> Absolutely. Now let's talk a little bit about the process. I think most people um, have seen a military recruiter at their high school campus at some point or would know how to find the office. But if you express interest in going into the military, I think a lot of it starts with the uh, ASVAB exam. Yes. Yeah, the ASVAB, uh, the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. Uh, that is the basically the key to um, what jobs you qualify for and what you're going to do. And uh, one of the, the big things, um, and I still encourage people to do this day, is if there's a job you want that's particular and it, it requires um, a higher skill uh, or a higher score to get it, um, always do some form of improvement as that improvement test. Because um, sometimes we're rusty. You might be good in math versus English or vice versa. But that once you take that ASVAB score and that score is locked in for you, that is your basically as long as you pass, that's your locked in score for two years. Uh, that's a key part. Yeah, you won't hear a lot of people talk about that because if you like the minimum passing score being a 31, say it's just a not a great day and you, you get that bare minimum score, that is what you will get. And that's what jobs you will look for based on that qualification versus, you know, you practice for a couple of weeks and you bump that score up to a 50, a 70, your job skills go up exponentially for selection. Uh, yes. I actually, I did take the ASVAB back in high school. Um, so we're going back 25 years now. Um, <laughs> oddly enough, I scored highest in artillery, uh, but uh. I believe, I remember it, maybe the format has changed, but I remember it as being seven categories that were timed some of them were very quick and like four minutes and then you change topics and do 16 minutes or something like that. But I remember it being kind of a blur, but um, mm -hmm. okay, well, that's good. So basically what we're saying is the score you get on the ASVAB is going to determine what jobs are available to you. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And like, uh, for example, my niece is thinking about enlistment right now. So I referred her to an online practice test she could take and for the job she wants, she's interested in air traffic controller. She's not quite where she needs to be. So before she contacts a recruiter, uh, she ordered a, an ASVAB improvement book on Amazon and she's practicing with it till she can get that higher threshold score to take the test. Oh, that's fantastic advice. Okay. And yeah. then after you get your score, uh, maybe there's a step or two in between, but eventually there's something called MEPS. Correct. What was it? What was it called again? Uh, MEPS, military. Oh, the MEPS. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah and the uh, so like some some for the ASVAB, some students get the opportunity to take the ASVAB at high schools. You'll have proctors go out and administer the test. Um, but the majority of the applicants will actually go to the MEPS to do the ASVAB test. And 
Now that that can consist of just doing the ASVAB and then coming home, talking about job options with your parents, et cetera. Um, but a lot of people will go to the MEPS. They'll take that ASVAB test. They'll get shuttled over to a hotel for the night, brought over to the MEPS very early in the morning, like around 545 uh, arrival at the MEPS to begin the physical process uh, prior to potentially enlisting. Okay. Yeah. And I, I distinctly remember once a recruiter telling me that when you go to MEPS for the physical, the expectation is you're joining, not that you're window shopping. I don't, I don't know if that's always the case, but. Yeah, it, it's um, so they can project um, an applicant to come to the MEPS uh, for the test, the test and the physical or the test physical and the enlistment. But if you have specified, like you've come to the MEPS for that, the all portions, then it is expected that you do that. And when um, applicants, which occasionally happens, finish with the physical and they decide, you know what, I need more time. Uh, generally the recruiter will come up and attempt to speak to them to try to make sure. Cause yeah, when you're, when you're up there for everything, it's like you, you want, you want the recruiter wants to finish the enlistment process if possible. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Very good. And I should clarify for the audience that everything we're discussing today is for enlisted personnel, not officers. The officer track is completely different. Uh, and we'll, I may cover that in a, in a future show, but I think the enlistment portion will apply to more of my, my audience right now. Um, Correct. Yeah. The only part for the officers that's identical, so to speak, is just that ASVAB test and the physical. And you need the higher scores on the ASVAB for officer qualification. Physical is the, the same, but yeah, that, that actual final enlistment portion is significantly different. Yes. Yeah. And what about um, sort of the physical requirements upon going in? I, I mean, I, I, everyone would imagine you've got to be in decent shape when you start, right? Yeah, um, it's something we've discussed, um, which you'll, you may have seen it in like uh, some news programs and stuff too, because the, uh, like you and I kind of grew up in a bit more of a, an outdoor type generation. There wasn't internet um, and so we have seen um, uh, like a little bit more issue with the physical portion because not as many uh, young men and women are as involved as physically as we used to. So uh, we do see that being a, a portion of it where sometimes we have to have the applicants work with the recruiter on physical fitness to get to a certain point. Uh, one big change the military made uh, several years ago, I want to I want to say about maybe eight years ago, uh, they started what's called the Occupational Physical Assessment Test. Um, the main uh, reason behind this was uh, to make sure people met the physical needs for the type of job they were doing. So you have basically your combat jobs, which is like your infantry, um, artillery, et cetera. Then you have um, your combat support jobs, which that would be like um, your motor transportation operators, um, some of your ammunition supply folks, stuff like that. And then you have your combat service support. And those are like your paperwork folks that are going to do uh, your admin records, your finance, stuff like that. Yep. So what this, uh, this OPAT, Occupational Physical Assessment Test, did was made sure you met those minimum physical qualifications for the job you were coming in for. Uh, the other big portion of it was for the incorporation of uh, females into the combat arms fields, uh, which if they wanted to do it, as long as they met those physical standards, there was no problem for them. And we did have some young men, like we talked about with um, uh, the less physical generation that wanted the infantry and the combat jobs and didn't meet the... Uh, OPAT level tests for the physical assessment, 
which was a good thing because, you know, not a lot of people understand before they come in what the physical portion entails. And so for, for, you know, some of them, it was a much better option to look at that combat service and combat service support position versus the combat. Okay. And off the top of your head, can you think of any medical conditions that would disqualify somebody? Yes. Um, so um, there's conditions that a lot of people live with that they never, they live a perfectly normal life. They just never realized they had this issue. Um, probably the most surprising one for a lot of folks is colorblindness. Uh, so they'll give you um, an eye chart and, and people can prior to talking to a recruiter, just so you can maybe potentially avoid uh, wasting your own time. There's a lot of online uh, vision tests for colorblindness, color vision that people can take prior to even going to the, to the MEPS. And there are certain jobs you can still do with colorblindness issues. But uh, one of the toughest parts as a recruiter and guidance counselor, which is what I do right in the contracts, is when you have this applicant that's already fallen in love with the idea of doing, for example, infantry, and then they come into the MEPS and they take that color vision test, which is basically a colored number on a colored background that's different than the number, and yeah. they can't read that number. And then they find out they cannot be infantry. They can look at other support positions, but not that one. So the color vision is the big one. Uh, the other ones folks find out, find out about is um, uh, vision issues. So if they don't have correctable vision, astigmatism is a little bit too uh, far out of the range. Uh, hearing, hearing's another one because we have the, the, it goes through all the range of the high pitch range to the low pitch range of your hearing frequencies. And some people are on one end of that spectrum. They can hear good in the normal range, uh -huh. but they miss out on that spectrum hearing and they find out that is a disqualifier and they can't look at doing that as an option. Okay. And are there any, um, just off the top of my head, what about somebody who's diabetic? Is that a disqualifier? Yes. Yes. So mm -hmm. the, uh, the interesting thing about the military is there's, there's a lot of uh, health conditions that you can develop after you've enlisted in the military. Um, so if you did develop um, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, if you developed some type of controllable uh, psychological disorder, uh, the military will work to retain and keep you because they, if it happened during your time in service, they're going to work with you on it. But prior to entering the military, um, typically, yeah, if, if you have diabetes, that's an automatic, can't work with it. That high blood pressure required medication, automatic. Mm -hmm. um, there's certain drug allergies because of the, the like medications that we have to use, especially in a combat environment. Um, let me think. One, one other one that uh, was brought to my attention this week. Uh, what about somebody who has a metal implant, maybe from a broken leg or broken arm? Have you ever heard of that? Uh, Yes. Yeah, so there's uh, what we look at is on. So on a fixed bone, for example, like the femur between the knee and the hip, um, if there was a, a like a metal implant there to keep the, the bone intact, that is that has a possibility of getting a waiver. There is a there is a good chance for that one. Um, any metal or hardware on a joint articulating joint like the knee, the, the ankle, the elbow wrist, uh, those are the ones that are very difficult Um you don't see very many waivers for stuff like that. Okay. But any, anyone who has implanted metal is going to need a waiver or at least. Correct. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. So um, what, what should somebody, I mean, obviously if somebody's going to do your basic four year enlistment 
and we'll just stick to the army because that's what you, you know best. Obviously, they're going to be trained in their job and they're going to be assigned to a unit and all that. But beyond those, those experiences, what should somebody get out of the military experience? Uh, so they're, they, they're going to get the leadership. The leadership's a big portion of it. And it, even talking to like civilian employers, that's a big part they talk about because you're like, we put a lot of value in leadership. Um, cause the, especially in the, in the combat arms fields where uh, like in a battlefield situation, anything can happen at any time. And someone, you know, you might get separated from a unit, but you have a group of people. So you're taught to take over and take leadership in any given situation. Uh, the other portions is that um, uh, teamwork and working amongst a team, obviously that has huge importance and you do learn those skills and, and get those skills to be able to help accomplish a joint and like a united mission, uh, as well as getting a, that, that skill set out of there. Um, a big thing the military shifted to, and this was probably, really they started this program more after Vietnam was trying to get the skills from the military recognized on, by the civilian world. So everyone who does the military now, you get what's called an arts transcript that basically breaks down exactly how many college credits you should get for all of the training starting from basic all the way through whatever portion of your career you've done. And so for me, for example, um, not having set foot in a college at all, when I sent my arts transcript to a college, they, I, I was already uh, 64 credits into an, a bachelor's degree program if I wanted to do a business management degree program, oh, which right. I, I okay. ended up doing. Yeah, it worked out very well. Okay, so essentially they, they give you an army transcript that translates to a college transcript. Yes, yes. Breaks it down by uh, college hours and semester hours for the college, whatever college you're going to. Um, and the other portion, which you kind of alluded to earlier a little bit with the, uh, the 91 series gentlemen, is a lot of the jobs have the technical certifications. Um, I, I, have, I had a couple applicants that I recruited for the military that were in high school that were interested in going to college for the exact same job we had. So my recruiting approach to them was, you know, when you're looking at going to college, how much is your um, certification or your degree program going to cost? And when they would tell me, I would say, well, you realize the, the military will actually pay you to get trained in that and certify you in it for, and you won't have a bill whatsoever. You'll actually get a paycheck. And yeah. so there were several, yeah, there were several people that ended up instead of going to college, joining the military, having great experiences out of it and no debt whatsoever. And I will actually uh, add to that for, for, for my audience. Uh, several years ago when I lived in Nashville, the best plumber I've ever encountered did six years in the Navy as a plumber and was making well over six figures because he got that training for free. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say because that the, in the Navy, the ships are, have to be self-sufficient. I'm willing to wager Navy probably has the best plumbers um, anywhere, dealing with all that water, especially. Taking I, out I water imagine. is a different issue in the Navy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. For sure. And, and so um, what can you tell the audience about basic training? Okay, so uh, basic training, the, the main premise behind basic training, um, and you'll hear a lot of uh, kind of opinions or, or labels of it. Basically, it's, it's a nine-week mind game. Um, and and there, to a degree, it's correct. What it is, is it's, you're put in a very controlled environment to see if you can, if you can function, basically. 
So everything's structured for you. And it's in a higher level sense, it's basically, would you be able to survive a structure if you were deployed overseas? And so, yeah, it's part of the, and part of the reminders they would give us, um, like the recruiters told us, um, and I told my applicants, I said, look, the, the rest of the army, the rest of the military is not like boot camp. If it was, none of us would stay in the military because <laughs> it's designed yeah, to be a bit uncomfortable, uh, take some of your freedoms away and see how you react. And once you survive that nine week experience, then you go into your job training, your, your AIT advanced individual training for us, but whatever your actual job is. And then it's more like, uh, it's, it's a small bit of boot camp cause you're still doing the physical, uh, training in every morning and it's still structured. You're still staying in barracks, but the job training is just like going to a VOTEC. You're actually getting hands-on skill training in whatever, uh, job you're going for. You get evaluated. And like I said, you come out with a certification based on that job. Okay. And are, are there a certain number of people who don't make it through basic training? Yes. Yes. Um, and so for my basic training example, um, uh, there was a gentleman that had hurt his knee and he actually, I remember this very specifically, he'd had a previous knee injury from high school football. And I remember he was trying to tough his way through it, but for, for joining infantry, he just like his knee could not sustain the, the workload of having that heavy pack on, et cetera. Um, and you'll see some uh, young men and women that just once they get to basic training, they find out it's really not for them. They're not as interested as they thought they were. Um, and it, it happened pretty regularly. And back when I joined, uh, and I joined in 97, uh, if you decided to quit, so to speak, uh, they would keep you throughout the entire nine weeks. You would just work in an admin function supporting the rest of the people going through basic. Now, it's um, you, you end up coming home um, in about two to three weeks if you decide to quit has been the experience I've observed. Okay. I didn't even know that was an option. I, I thought once you signed up, you were in. <laughs> yeah, it's changed uh, quite a bit. You end up getting a, um, a discharge. It's not a dishonorable discharge, but um, it's it makes it significantly more difficult to get back into the military. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I was looking this up this morning. So when you come out of basic training, you would be uh, a pay grade E1 private. Is that correct? Yeah. If you, if you didn't have any college, um, you were not an Eagle Scout, for example, or you hadn't done any, basically you had no reasons to be advanced. Uh, you come in as an E1 and it takes six months for the army to go from E1 to E2. Gotcha. And I was, I was just curious. Uh, so an E1 pays about $20,000 a year. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people look at that number and they think, oh my gosh, I, you know, I can make more working at McDonald's. And while that's you know, true, you're not, you, you don't have any bills whatsoever. Literally, your, your, pay, your food, your, uh, the place you stay, your rent, utilities, um, everything that you would normally pay, you don't end up paying for. Um, typically, the only bills we have in the military is your car bill and your cell phone or, and, or internet bill. Okay. And that's it. And there were plenty of times as a young private where I got a brand new TV, brand new video game system. My account wasn't as, as, as good as I'd like it to be, but I always knew I had a place to stay and I had food to eat and I was, it wasn't going to have any issues. Okay. And, and um, when, I, I, I guess it's not advertised so much on TV anymore, but a lot of people have seen those ads of signing bonuses. How, how do those work? Yes. Yeah, so the signing bonuses. So um, 
has to do with the job you pick as well as the score that you get. Uh, so what we will see, so for the, the National Guard, for example, which is where I work as a guidance counselor now, um, if you are above a 50 on your ASVAB score and you pick from, it's, it's about 20 different jobs, uh, one of the jobs on that list, uh, the typical bonus for a six-year six National Guard contract is a $20,000 enlistment bonus, um, which you would get 10000 of it after you complete your basic and your job training. And then the other 10 is broken down over the anniversary of your enlistment. They'll give you two grand every year. Um, and they'll give you a $200 a month uh, Montgomery GI Bill kicker, which basically if you're doing a bachelor's degree program over the course of those four years, every month you're enrolled in school, you get a $200, basically a stipend to do whatever you want with. Um, for the active duty side, it depends on both your ASVAB score and the job you're coming in for. And actually uh, third to that is the length of your contract. So you'll okay. see, for example, if you're coming in to be a human intelligence collector, which is in, in the Intel field, um, and this, this is, this is ballpark cause these numbers change, uh, can change pretty regularly, but you may be offered maybe $20,000 for a four-year contract, $30,000 for a five-year contract and 50,000 for a six-year contract. They'll, they'll end up going, going up quite a bit, uh, depending on the length of your contract, but everyone has to make, you know, the, what's the right decision for them as well. Because when you are looking at re-enlisting, the, the army, the military is going to try to retain you and there will be another bonus involved in that. Yeah. And, and these, these bonuses are, they're just paid to you as cash to spend on anything or earmarked for college or. No, uh, cash for, to spend on anything. Like you said, oh, now okay. there are, um, there are other incentives. Um, so if you did, for example, the student loan repayment, obviously that would be, uh, we, we look at the amount of student loan debt you have, um, and we look at paying back a portion, if not 100% of that. Um, if you're looking at, for uh, example, Montgomery GI Bill, uh, those look at paying the colleges the money to take care of your tuition. Uh, and th those are different benefits. But that cash bonus one you mentioned, that is 100% money in your pocket to do whatever you want with. Gotcha. Okay. Now, now on the topic of money, though, um, would, is money an okay reason to join the military, in your opinion? Um, I'd say no, um, because, and you know, everybody's got different situations going on. Um, the, it, cause you're, it's not so much, you know, a job where you can just walk away. And that, that's kind of the main reason I say, uh, money shouldn't be the main catalyst for you. Um, if money can be a second or a third reason, but, you're, when you sign a contract with the military, you're 100% expected to fulfill that contract. Uh, like we talked about, you know, being able to leave basic training, that's one thing. But once you complete your basic, complete your job training and report to your unit, yeah. that is where, yeah, you are 100% expected to stay. And if you don't stay after that, then you are looking at like dishonorable discharge if you decided to change your mind. Um, and I did have um, a couple enlistments that I did where uh, young men and women basically had no option. These are like uh, one young man was basically, he'd gotten kicked out of his home. Uh, he had just graduated high school and he was living with a friend in the basement on the couch. Yeah. So his situation, you know, he, he didn't have any issues with serving his country. It wasn't his main reason, but he needed a job. And I made sure when I talked to him, uh, those was one, that was one of the applicants that I said, okay, we're not going to look at combat jobs for you because 
I, I said, I'll do it if you, if you force me to, which it's, it's hundred percent his option. But I said, you need a skill that you can fall back on maybe later on down the road, look at combat. And I put him in the medical field as a nurse. And so he ended up getting a nursing degree as well as his EMT certification. So he did, he did very well for himself and it, it helped him a lot. Well, I don't know if he thanked you, but I thank you. That's very kind of you to look out for him in that way. Oh yeah, absolutely. That I, as a recruiter, that was, that was why I was very successful as a recruiter. Cause a lot of people talk about um, recruiters, you know, telling lies, trying to do anything they can to get an applicant into the military, which I'm not going to say those recruiters don't exist anymore. Uh, the advantage for young men and women today is, uh, is the technology. For example, listening to this podcast, um, going online and looking up um, blogs and articles of people that have already done it. And a big reason, like I said, I was successful as a recruiter was I was honest with my applicants. I told them if the job they wanted was a very difficult, not a very fun <laughs> job, I told them, I, I said, look, you may not like this position. Uh, it's not one I would do. And as long as I was honest with them, I had a good experience. I got a lot of referrals. I ended up probably only my first six months in recruiting was really hard recruiting. After that, everything was referral based for me because they knew when they came to me, I was going to give them the straight up truth. And I even told them the same thing I said just a little bit earlier. If something I say sounds weird, look it up. You guys have the advantage of the internet now and all mm -hmm. these forums where you can find out, okay, I saw five articles that said, this is not the truth, what this recruiter is telling me then it's probably not the truth. I'm glad you brought that up. I actually wrote down the question, can recruiters lie to you? Um, because I've, I have heard stories, not horror stories necessarily, but I'm, gl I'm glad that you're right. The internet should correct most of that. But anyone who's talking to a recruiter, uh, you know, you can do your own research on what they're telling you and find a chat room or a veteran and uh, verify that what you're being told is, is in fact the case. I think that's yes, good. absolutely right. Because at, at the end of the day, like everybody as an individual, you're 100% going to have your own best interests in mind. Um, and with with the technology that we have, you have to take advantage of it. You absolutely have to. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the a lot of those recruiting stories do come from kind of like Vietnam era type recruiting because the the recruiting process has changed significantly. Um, like even me as a, as a guidance counselor. So I'm, I'm basically the last step before a young man or woman enlists in the military. You actually sign the contract with me before you do the oath. And there've been several times where uh, someone wasn't as sure about the, how the bonus worked, or they didn't have a full understanding of what the job was that they were doing. And sitting down right there with me, we changed their job, um, got them a bonus that was, maybe a, a little bit different of an option, a longer contract, shorter contract, et cetera, um, just to make sure that they had the, the better experience. And the, honestly, the biggest thing that has made recruiters be honest is social media and internet okay. because you, yeah, you're, you're going to get exposed if you keep, you know, telling false truths to young men and women. Absolutely. And uh, in just in thinking back to people I've talked to about their military experience over the years, getting back to the money topic, I agree with you. I don't think money should be the motivator. The three things that I've heard from people who have enlisted are uh, service to the country, job training, and then uh, structure. Some people I know when they were 18, 19, or even 21, 
just didn't have their act together and they knew they needed some structure. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and for me, for example, and I, uh, prior to the podcast we discussed, I, I have no problems telling my personal story because it's, I think it's important that people understand where different folks come from. And Absolutely. so my, my father, for example, uh, he, he grew up in boys' homes. So he never learned how to be a father. And it took me a long time to kind of understand that. So I, like I played athletics in high school and he wouldn't come to my games because he didn't, he didn't know that's what dads should do, for example. So I didn't get a good structure from my father. Now I had role models I adopted as a young man growing up, but the role models I got in the military, that, that structure piece was huge for me. And there's folks that I served with that I have closer bonds to them than I do blood family members. Yeah. And that's, that's a, yeah, it's a huge thing that uh, not a lot of folks understand until they get, until they have the experience of it. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we have covered uh, all of the questions I had for you specific to the military. I do have a final question I'm asking all of my guests, which is on any topic whatsoever, uh, what is something about the adult life that you wish you had figured out before you were 25? That is a good question. Um, I have all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I wish prior to, prior to adult life, prior to 25, um, maybe to not so much take everybody at, at face value for the words that they say, but maybe take a little bit more time to see if the actions back up what the person is saying. Because I, I grew up as a very, very trusting person. And I, I think a lot of people grew up that way. But the biggest thing about people that don't have good intentions for you, and this, this is, we're getting into kind of life lesson type stuff is. Absolutely. Yeah. If, um, if someone doesn't have the best intentions for you, eventually the actions are going to tell you what the words don't. Because yep. it's very easy for people to say things with their words that don't stand the test of time. Um, it, like they, they, you can say something in a second, but what have, they, what have they showed you over the course of a month that validates what they told you? I, I fully agree with that. Thank you for sharing that because I think surrounding yourself with people who keep to their word and have integrity is a very, very important life lesson. Yes. Yes. Couldn't agree more. That's, that's the, the value of a person that that value of the word has more value than anything else. Absolutely. All right. Well, Mark, I, I owe you a big one. This was, this was a great uh, episode and I appreciate all of your candor. Uh, so thanks for your time. And if I receive specific questions, I can shoot you an email and we'll follow up. Absolutely. I'd be more than happy to help anyone. Uh, awesome. Like I said, I, I had a lot of questions when I was first enlisting and I couldn't find a lot of answers. So if I can provide that for anyone else, I'd be more than happy to do Much it. Much appreciate it. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Mark. You as well. Thank you. Bye. That concludes today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any follow-up questions, you can email me at askjimkta at gmail.com or for more information, check out kitchentableadulting.com.